Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. My guests today um, are Stephen and Gloria Decatur, uh, who uh, founded and run Live Power Community Farm in Covalo, California. Covalo is a a community in Mendocino County, and um, they have been uh, working this farm since 1973. and uh, part of that live power um, concept involves their commitment to a solar-based non-fossil fuel agriculture, but also the sense of, of it, it being a community-powered farm. Um, so welcome, guys, and, and thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, maybe you can give it, you know, we talked just for a couple of minutes there about the the importance of being able to bring people through. So this is, and enable them to really see for themselves and and to understand what's happening there. And this is obviously, it's not just standard farm in that it's about so much more than just what you can grow and and get to market. Um, You're growing things, you're growing people, you're growing understanding, you're you're growing the soil, obviously. so maybe you could just uh, start us off by giving us a, a, a sense of how you came to this focus for what, what you're doing there. Um, my training actually was with, uh, in 1968 with Alan Chadwick at the University of California, Santa Cruz, when he founded the gardens there. And prior to that, as a young person, I had no idea uh, that there, the whole world of growing plants and a man working with nature, nature in a positive way, Alan would say uh, that man can magnify uh, natural processes. That's not modify, that's magnify through our awareness and our efforts. And uh, having been introduced to that amazing world of creation and life and beauty, uh, in a garden that was uh, a learning and teaching garden. I felt that that experience was so valuable uh, to myself personally that I wanted to kind of continue that in 
what I did uh, with uh, developing the farm. So we've always kept it open as a place that people can come into and learn skills, but even more than that, uh, connect with the part of themselves that is of the earth. Uh, there's a little bit of earth in all of us, I believe, and I wanted to create the opportunity in this totally alienated and uh, disrupted world for people to make that connection uh, on a personal level through their experience being in a living farm organism. So that's, that's been the basis. <laughs> yeah. On balance, is, is it pretty much 50-50 in terms of, uh, you know, what we would think of as farm production and uh, the educational and experiential element? Um, in terms of labor or what? Well, I, guess, I guess more in terms maybe of, of, of how you keep it running. Um, you know, obviously you need to be able to bring in enough, enough cash resources or financial resources to get the, keep the bills paid and, and that sort of thing. So is it, is it, is it well-balanced, do you think, between the two or does one supersede the other? How do you work that out? Well, the, you know, the vegetables uh, are considerable time consuming. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, work involved with that, but I would say that the educational part of the farm, uh, its role in that way has been maybe getting towards 50-50. Yes, we have had to uh, create an income stream, but part of that income stream is through our class visits, which uh, are educational and also uh, the uh, work, uh, education, learning experience of people, young people wanting to farm uh, has made what we've done possible. So uh, that's, yeah, definitely a major element. I think this is a really important point because one of the, one of the aspirations of the regenerative movement, you know, is and maybe one of the understandings of the, of the of this growing regenerative movement is the fact that that through these practices you know, we're not just regenerating soil. I mean, ju just in, in quotation marks because that's a massive accomplishment right. um, and a massive need. But uh, we're seeing over and over again that not only do local economies get regenerated but local communities start talking to each other more effectively and the individuals who, who decide to become more involved find that their lives are changing in a, in a very positive way. Yes, that's occurred here. Uh, often people, uh, we had some of our uh, early members in our CSA community that were getting vegetables from us come to the farm for the first time and uh, on leaving, they told us that uh, being in the farm was sort of equivalent to them for, uh, of being in a church, that it was, you know, uh, a very spiritual moving experience for them. And uh, I think that's true for quite a few of the people that we've seen uh, come into the farm and be here. And do you find people coming to you from very far away or are there more word of mouth um, 
for more local people who've actually experienced the farm and they're talking to their friends about it? How does, how do people find you? I think it's word of mouth uh, worldwide. Uh huh. And um, we've been around so long. Sure. And it's people who've met people, you know, on the website. And um, I, it used to be in the early years that we had a lot of Europeans, a lot of Germans, and it, um, that was a whole trend that was going on. And now it's um, the last, oh, I don't know, 20 years or so, it's been more Americans coming through and finding out it, talking to someone while they're traveling around the world somewhere and <laughs> say, yeah, you should check out Life Power. So it's been kind of amazing. And our, our um, half of our vegetable uh, community farm members uh, are or have been uh, in San Francisco. So, you know, that's uh, three hours away but um, it's extended the contacts of the farm being with that community there. And then in the other towns nearby us, uh, we also have members. And in Covalo, we have members, but Covalo, when we started, was small enough that uh, it wouldn't have been enough member support from the vegetables to really keep us going. So. We had contacts with people in the Bay Area from hosting school classes on, on the farm. And so we went to those folks to initiate the community farm. And so you mentioned earlier the CSA and it, for, for people who are listening to this, um, CSA is community supported agriculture. Um, maybe give us a, just a quick overview on, on how that is a, a distinct strategy uh in terms of keeping keeping the books balanced but also in terms of, of outreach and um and commitment towards making sure the farm succeeds yeah the um the original concept in the 87 that was brought in and actually there were precursor concepts in uh Japan and uh, other areas, I think Switzerland. Uh, but the idea was that a, a community of eaters recognizing the importance of food and care of the land uh, to them as individuals. Uh, I mean, Wendell Berry's quote that everyone who eats is farming, uh, you know, is really true. Uh, you, you may not know where the money you spend on food is going and how the person growing it is growing it or what's going on there. But uh, it's really important to recognize that it's fundamental to human life, uh, our agriculture and how we take care of the earth. So uh, the original concept was that a group of eaters, conscious eaters, that wanted to see the land taken care of in a good way into certain standards, uh, uh, ecological standards, uh, would join up with a farmer who had the skills and could do the work. And uh, the farmer would present an operating budget for growing the food for that specific community of people and plan the food production to meet the needs of that community. 
and then um, they would become a uh, a community taking care of a farm uh, but also being fed from that farm they would share in the harvest uh, if there were uh, losses in some crops or that you know didn't come out optimum or something that was just uh, part of accepting the fact that uh, in farming uh, we're always subject to natural uh, conditions and you know you can't totally guarantee a uh, certain output um, but if you're growing 35 different crops you certainly can come up with food so that's the important part and um, so that is a fundamental relationship of uh, mutual support where the bottom line of the economic process is uh, looking at the needs of all the players, the farmer, the eater, and the earth, and then um, basing the economic process on meeting those needs. And the bottom line becomes the good of the whole community. And this is a completely different concept than market agriculture, or uh, should I say market capitalism, uh, as we kind of know it today, where often the gain is towards uh, one individual party or another in some way and uh, often resulting in ecological disaster. And so we, when we learned of this concept in 1987, we felt that this was, uh, had a huge potential to transform uh, not only our social relationships, but our economic awarenesses and uh, and to really, you know, enable small scale farming to thrive. And um, so that's been the course we've been on for the last uh, about 40 years, um, trying to maintain that. Uh, the concept, the uh, term CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, was a name that got applied to this original concept. But then later down the line, uh, people, you know, that maybe are you know, industrial, larger scale growers uh, have so much product that uh, trying to find places for it to go becomes an issue. They saw, uh, quote, CSA as another marketing avenue. Uh, another place to move produce and so it got put on a uh, market basis of so many pounds of food for so much money and uh, you know maybe not uh, an effort to maintain the uh, educational potential of uh, a true community farm where people are more aware and more involved in uh, the, the farming uh, goals. So uh, I consider CSA as a misnomer <laughs> nowadays, but uh, I still believe that that original concept has the potential to create the transformation that many of us would like to see occur. And um, so we're, we're working with that concept. That's, that's interesting because, you know, this week and last week, there's been a lot of discussion um, about the changing um, label for organic produce. 
and the fact that uh, now you're going to be able to uh, much more broadly um, or in a much more diluted way slap that label on things and say, oh, yeah, it's organic, um, including uh, um, hydroponics, for instance. Right. Uh, um, and, and, and so, the, you know, on the, on the regenerative end of things, we're saying, well, if you divorce it from the soil, how can you really call this organic? But what it, what it brings to mind is, is, is the fact that it seems every few decades or every generation or so, we're, we're faced with this process of coming up with a new way to name and, and talk about what we mean, right? Because there's a, there's a drift and things tend to get co-opted. So in the case of community support, exactly. CSA, as you say, you know, this, this was about the community being engaged in the agriculture. Right. And now it's been co-opted and it's just like, well, you know, here's a feel good way for you to get your, you know, 10 pounds a week of produce and, um, and not complain too much about what the selection is. So CSA now needs to sort of say, no, 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 this is like, that's not what we're talking about. This is what we're talking about. And now we're going to have to call it something different. Just the same way I think organic is now going to have to move into regenerative labeling again so that it can better guarantee the customer that they're actually purchasing what they want to be supporting. Yeah, I mean, one way would be to uh, look at the percentage of the uh, where the crop does go. And so in, in some farms that have CSA program nowadays, you know, like maybe 30 percent is going wholesale, 30 percent is going in the farmer's market, and maybe 30 percent is going to a, uh, a member community. Uh, well, you'd have to say it's a 30 percent. CSA farm or something. I don't know, but that the, to me, that's the distinction is, uh, you know, what's the relationship with that member community and, uh, you know, how is that really creating the mutual support that actually has the potential if people uh, are committed to it and understand the necessity of it to even go beyond uh, bottom line market prices, you know, uh, to break that sort of mechanistic ep economic cycle that just uh, tries to take everything to the lowest price, which is what's happening with organics also, that it's being impacted hugely by all those economic forces. Yeah, and a kind of industrial scale coming in. Yes, and then that, and that, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, I know that uh, industrial scale organic agriculture has been termed uh, sustainable agriculture, but I would question that uh, because, you know, the, the origin of organic agriculture was people not wanting to see the earth poisoned and, uh, you know, to have poison in their food. And so they, you know, in the founding days of organic agriculture in this country as an economic sector in the 60s, it was, uh, you know, maybe we'll pay a little bit more because, uh, you know, we're not poisoning the earth. Well, that's true. Uh, and so people thought if they could, you know, uh, produce that. But today, my 
assessment is look at what's going on with our air and our climate. It isn't just the earth. If we want to have truly sustainable organic agriculture, uh, we've got to be addressing uh, what's going on with our uh, emissions and our pollution uh, in, in the atmosphere. And so I, I believe that, uh, again, that's sort of a, a, a misnomer, a misconstruction uh, to say that uh, modern industrial organic agriculture is sustainable. Uh, I, I can't see that it is. Uh, it's an oxymoron, isn't it? I mean, it's like sustainable and industrial don't fit in the same part of my brain. Yeah, they just, they don't really uh, line up and they, they skip too much of the importance uh, of the detail uh, of what's really going on. So I believe that, uh, you know, basing our agriculture, we're going to need to, to base it on uh, the energy of the sun, the current energy, rather than fossil energy. And, and you mentioned that in, in the description of, of uh, in, in your values, in your, in your um, you know, your vision and the, and the goals you pursue and, and, and how you go about it, you, you talk about this solar-based uh, agriculture. Um, Maybe say a little bit more about that. Well, um, you know, there are uh, tillage needs for the land for cultivation and tillage and transportation and so on in a farm organism. Um, and uh, those can be met with uh, draft horses uh, or draft animals. Uh, you know, it's, it's instructive to realize we've had agriculture for 10,000 years and we've had fossil energy-based agriculture since the 1900s when tractors showed up. That's only 100 years. It's a drop in the bucket in terms of the whole scenario of agriculture. And what is the future scenario of agriculture? So uh, at this point, the horse or, or a, a work animal draft animal, uh, yes, much slower scale or uh, time frame uh, and smaller scale in terms of what can be, uh, you know, produced uh, uh, by a, probably a particular farm. But um, that, that, uh, that uh, potential for the animals to uh, do the work uh, and they fit into the whole uh, natural balances of creation uh, in a way that the machinery doesn't. Uh, yes, it may be uh, one person driving that uh, thousand acre tractor, but it's you know hundreds of people building the parts, uh, replacing the parts, uh, fixing, uh, maintaining the fuel supply and all the pollution and cleanup that comes from, uh, or will have to come from that. I mean, it may appear that one person is able to farm a thousand acres, but uh, really it's on the basis of uh, huge uh, involvement of other people in other areas. Uh, whereas a, a draft animal, you know, you, you, 
you don't come out and have a tractor born next to your tractor. Uh, you, you can come out and have a, a new horse born next to your horse. Absolutely. That's, yeah. a, that's actually, uh, that's, that's an image I bring up frequently, actually. You know, you could, you, you could do, and in terms of transport too, like you can park your, you know, your two cars together forever and you're not going to come out or find a third car there. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's a huge potential for work animals in uh, tillage and uh, caring for the land. And of course, it also does involve a lot more people, but uh, that's not a bad thing necessarily. Uh, the only uh, thing about agriculture is if people work so hard and then are not really compensated, then that not fairly compensated, uh, then that is uh, unendurable. But, um, you know, the work is good work. And there are many people that probably could engage in it uh, profitably to themselves spiritually also. So uh, that we might need more human involvement on the land again, uh, if we pass through this phase of fossil energy agriculture, I don't see that as necessarily a bad thing. Uh, and then, you know, with today's technology in other realms, uh, specifically photovoltaic electricity, there are all the mechanical needs in farming. And uh, pumping water, of course, is a major one, but, uh, you know, shop repair and welding and all just kinds of things like that, that where you need energy, but that could be generated directly from the sun through the photovoltaic technology. So that's, those are the two sort of basis, power basis that I see as uh, for the regenerative agriculture of the future. And a, a lot of uh, innovation and uh, product development needs to happen in those areas, particularly well, with the horses, uh, some of the Amish companies are now making some much better equipment that extends the capacity uh, for, you know, getting more work accomplished. Um, but there are some things like a little front loader or something that you need that are sort of hard to adjust the horses. And I don't know of any current equipment for, the, for that purpose, but I'm sure with our expertise today, we could design something that uh, would be electrically powered uh, that could lift and load compost, for instance, or do some of those kinds of tasks that are, are more difficult to really to accomplish with, with the workhorses. Well, so, and there's a, you know, there's a host of, of particularly young um, graduate uh, engineers and entrepreneurs, uh, as well as small startups that with the right incentivization and the right encouragement could just jump right into this and, and come up probably with a dozen or more equally viable options for, you know, for, for how to, how to create that bit of kit that's, that's missing. That's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. There's huge opportunity in that. I think some of this has to do with the work that you've been doing over these many, many years in terms of educating people, getting them engaged and ultimately shifting the entire conversation around like where does, what is the role of agriculture and, and, and land, um, land practice in our society. 
that many people have said that the, the percentage that the Americans, the average American pays for their, the, the percentage of their total income paid out for food in America is one of the smallest in the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and these are the kinds of things that can tip pretty quickly when the picture becomes clear for enough people. So that, that sense of, of like, where are we, you know, where are we putting, even if it's difficult for us uh, individually to, to balance the, the domestic budget, you know, the, the house budget, how are we deciding where to invest that? How are we deciding where that gets spent? You know, are we, are we going to just continue to buy industrially produced as cheap as possible stomach fillers so that we can actually spend our time distracting ourselves from the fact that our life sucks or are we going to spend more of our life and more of our time and possibly a higher percentage of our available funding on really high quality food and the relationship and the engagement and the community that comes associated with that. So these are values, these kind of value shifts that have to happen, but we've seen values shift pretty quickly. Yeah, it's uh, it's huge, and shifting that those values is not going to occur by business as usual. Take the food off the shelf, you know, and so that's where it's really critical, I think, to get more and more people, as many people as possible, uh, that only know agriculture from that relationship of buy the food off the shelf. Get those people into farms where they have a personal experience uh, can see food being produced see what is involved in doing that and uh, see you know how important that is because it is fundamental to their life it's just that that's all unconscious nowadays that's what one the berry's statement again everybody that's yeah. uh, eating is farming um, we've got to get people into the farm so that they can start to see that relationship in personal terms. Well, that's exactly it. It seems to me that the two of the things that seem to be in the most damaging short supply, or damaging because the supply is short, is relationship and meaning. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, and and this this approach to to a community engaged. It's not just community supported agriculture that you've, that you've been describing. It's community engaged agriculture. So maybe that's our new label. That's a uh, new label. I like that better. You yeah. know, <laughs> but the, like this really speaks not only to the things that are hurting people because they're lacking, but also some of the, the, the basis for the problems that seem to be spiraling out of control in our society. It's just like nothing has any meaning or all meaning seems to be kind of equal. And so therefore nothing. Um, and the relationships are breaking down. So if we can find a way to engage people in something that is both meaningful, you know, and helps them reestablish good relationships, you know, what's not to love about that? Yeah. Um, you know, we talked, we started talking about the, the way in which the, the community uh, education and the community experience aspect is, is a really essential part of that balance in terms of the viability of the farm. Um, but something else that we spoke about just before we started the recording 
was this concept of decommoditizing the land itself. And you had mentioned that uh, when you started up, you uh, basically arranged to get an easement um, that would require the land to follow by that biodynamic practice, but that it also it separated you from the requirement and the, you know, the, the weight of that requirement to actually try and purchase the land. So in other words, that you basically have the rights to grow there, but you're not, you're not having to get into to land ownership. Could you uh, kind of go into that a little bit? Yeah, um, the, the start of it is that we came on the land as caretakers and we were in fact caretaking on this property for uh, 20 years, uh, not owning it. And that of course makes it a little difficult to invest in the infrastructure and things you need, but we had to just do the minimal that we could. And um, so uh, the owner fortunately supported uh, what we were trying to accomplish and also owned quite a lot of other land uh, and was able to consider maybe eventually selling the uh, 40 acres, which is the ag land zoning in our area. Um, but he needed to get market value for that. Um, and so even as beginning farmers, even with uh, 20 years <laughs> of growing, uh, addressing buying land at market value was uh, a, a pretty challenging um, and not having a you know credit uh, history or loan uh, never having had loans previously um, so uh, we our members our, our community farm I think was about four or five years old at that point and uh, we had a a farm visit day, which we tried to have two or three times a year, and uh, tried to get people even from the Bay Area to come. And um, so a, a group got together, we were talking about land and the future and the situation, and they stepped up and said, let's get in the corner here and talk about how we can approach uh, holding this land because we want this farm to continue and we want this relationship to continue. And these people had uh, expertise with nonprofits. They had expertise uh, in overseas agricultural development. They, you know, there were some uh, people with uh, great connections and expertise and background uh, that volunteered a group of about 10 people and we started meeting regularly. And uh, so we were able, uh, you know, at first it was uh, a question whether to form it as a nonprofit, but then, um, you know, there are difficulties in operating with a nonprofit, particularly it's got to be primarily educational, scientific, or uh, charitable. And what do you do with selling vegetables <laughs> in that kind of a format? Uh, there are ways, but um, also then there requires maintenance of a board of directors and so on. So we were still looking at alternatives. It took us about three years. Uh, we eventually uh, began to learn about uh, conservation easements, which are, you know, an old 
uh, legal tool in uh, English law and all, you know, it's, it's been established practice where you might uh, give uh, the uh, rights, certain rights, like uh, say just uh, crossing over your land, you can sell those rights at specific uh, use to another party and then it you no longer own that use it can devalue the property depending on what the use is and how it impacts the property and so on so uh, we eventually learned that uh, we could take that uh, legal form and uh, extend it beyond uh, ways that had were typically used uh, which could involve uh, restrictions on building development on the property for instance and or subdivision and that that would uh, reduce its value um, we decided that what we really need for the long term is the use secure use of the agricultural rights the growing rights in the property and of course the buildings uh, are man-made and something that uh, we have to develop and invest in and maintain and so we needed the ownership of that also so we were able to uh, design a conservation easement that requires uh, the only commercial use is organic or biodynamic agriculture. So that has to be the primary use of the land with sub-uses of uh, agricultural education or agricultural trades, like maybe building carriages, wagons or something. Uh, we wanted to leave a certain amount of leeway, but those had to be, uh, in terms of income, they had to be less than half of the agricultural income. So, um, and we uh, we eliminated uh, the use of GMO uh, crops also. And so this was uh, taking it one step down the line towards creating a permanent farm and an organic or biodynamic farm. And then uh, we wanted to see that the land would be farmed long-term actively uh, on the basis that food bearing land is not totally a private resource in a way, it's the food, uh, food production basis for the community at large. And so if land is just locked up in a private estate, um, that's good, you know, uh, food producing land, then in a way uh, that doesn't honor the community's stake in the earth. <laughs> So uh, we required that the owner uh, show half of their income coming from uh, farm products. So that sort of mandates a certain level of uh, agricultural production uh, from the land ongoing. So that was the idea with, uh, with that requirement. And then uh, the other concern was that in the future, uh, if the land needs to change to uh, ownership to younger farmers that often nowadays uh, people that own uh, the whole uh, 
fee interest of the property. Uh, you know, they see it as a retirement, uh, sell it out for the maximum that you can get. And uh, it may not even go on as a farm. It may get dismantled, it takes generations to build a farm. Uh, it's tragedy when that happens. Uh, but, uh, and then it becomes uh, impossible for a young beginning farmer to uh, purchase that land. So we wanted to uh, try to uh, ensure that that wouldn't occur. And uh, so we have written into the easement uh, legal requirements that upon a sale, uh, it's valued, uh, appraised and valued for on the basis of its uh, agricultural production potential. You know, uh, looking at similar land in the area and so on, you can say uh, you could create a certain amount of crop for this time of type of farming. And with that income stream, you could afford to pay for land at X amount per acre and you'd be able to actually pay for it out of the agricultural income stream. Uh, in our case, uh, the easement carries an option that uh, if we try to sell the land for more than that, uh, it will revert to the land trusts uh, to, that holds the easement to um, choose the succession farmer. Um, so there's no incentive uh, to cash out for the maximum there's only the incentive to uh, sell for the working agricultural value. And by definition, uh, a value that uh, a farmer can uh, produce over time and, and pay for. And so the, uh, the goal was to create permanent affordability of farmland. So when we did all the numbers on this on our property, and as I say, it took about three years to work all this out to get it in a legal uh, document that would uh, be uh, secure. Um, it turned out that when it was valued, uh, it was about uh, half of the market value was actually represented by these uh, uses that we were giving up of cashing out the land of you know, uh, conventional agriculture and so on. And so uh, the other half uh, was represented by the land at its working agricultural value and the buildings. And so Gloria and I did succeed in getting a uh, private loan to cover that part of the ownership. And then we had to fundraise uh, as nonprofit donation to the land trust so that they could purchase all of these uh, speculative non-agricultural uses and take them into public ownership so that they would never be exercised in the future. And so that uh, brought, you know, decommoditized the land to its working agricultural value, uh, made it affordable to us as younger farmers and uh, still uh, enabled the market value to go to the owner to buy it out of the, you know, commodity uh, market system that applies to land. So that was a, a huge change in our lives to accomplish that. And it did take three years of 
fundraising through our member community and through just friends and by word of mouth and uh, to raise the money uh, donated to the land trust so they would have the money for the easement. Um, and then it all happened simultaneously. The easement was put in place. Uh, our loan was applied for the uh, limited um, fee interest that we owned of agricultural use of the land and the buildings. Did you set this up as a land trust specific to your farm or did you set this up as a land trust which is capable of, of um, engaging with other parcels in the future? Uh, we did not, uh, we did not uh, initiate a land trust. Uh, we found uh, a qualified 501c3 uh, organization that uh, was chartered to hold easements and land interests. Um, and actually we tried to work with local uh, conservation land trusts. You know, usually there are several in uh, any given area, but um, yeah. Yeah. we could, these steps were a little bit uh, new at that point in time and uh, it was difficult to find a local partner, but we did uh, partner with uh, Equity Trust, which is uh, based in Massachusetts. Uh, it was clear across the country, but it was a, um, you know, a national uh, uh, nonprofit organization. And um, the founder had done a lot of work in affordable housing in urban areas. So when we brought up this affordable farming concept, uh, he understood what we were talking about. And a lot of the conservation land trusts um, were used to putting development restrictions on the property, you know, say a dairy going out of business in the Bay Area or something. And, you know, that would devalue the property a, a certain amount. And the assumption was that, well, if it can't be developed, it'll be farmed. But often, uh, People with, you know, wealth and that want a, a rural setting might come in on a property like that. They're they're fine that they can't um, develop it, uh, and they can bid the price, and the price will actually start to migrate back towards uh, full market value, even with the restrictions on it. Just because of the bidding process. Yeah, because of that bidding process is still in there. Uh, and um, so, you know, if the next generation doesn't want a dairy and farm, then boom, that land uh, can, you know, be kept a little bit as open space, which is not a bad thing. I'm not, you know, saying that this is a bad thing. I'm just saying that it doesn't accomplish the goal of um, keeping that property in active agriculture. And so that's, that, that was our goal. And so whoever owns the 50 acres that we have in this farm now uh, will necessarily need to show half of their income coming from agricultural production or, you know, could involve educational work and other things, but all related to agriculture. 
And when you say agriculture, this is also locked into biodynamic or organic, is that right? Yes, exactly. And it's got to be organic or biodynamic. That's, that's exactly true. We didn't go as far as to require horse farming. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe before we exit, we should add that provision that it has to be live power farming and, and not... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Possibly yeah. so. It could cre create a very interesting opportunity for the next one. Yeah. So sometimes these constraints actually really are opportunities. It's, exactly. Yeah. It's almost cliche to say that, but you know, there are definite cases where it is the fact. We're going to take a break now, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind & Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A.com. And now, Back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise. We're chatting with Gloria and Steve Decatur from Live Power Community Farm in Covalo, California. So where do, where do you see, um, what would you like to see happen in say the next 10, 20 years on the farm there? Well, you know, being a biodynamic farm, we're, we've tried to create and maintain a whole farm organism. So we have the livestock, um, you know, four workhorses, about uh, 10 cows, herd cows, and then calves, and about uh, eight ewes and lambs, and usually some feeder pigs. We did keep a sow for a while, but we've, you can't do everything. <laughs> and yeah. chickens. Uh, you know, so that livestock element is integral to the whole farm element in that the manures that are produced and the bedding and so on are part of the fertility maintenance for the whole of the land. And in fact, in, you know, practically 40 years of uh, vegetable growing, we have been able to maintain fertility with those crop residues, uh, manures, and um, cover crops, you know, legume cover crops to uh, maintain uh, reasonable food production. And that's, uh, you know, a, a biodynamic concept that, that every farm should have the cattle to be truly healthy, creating its own uh, compost and manure. Nowadays, you know, what's called organic farming, often the compost is coming in in uh, semi-truck loads and it's made out of waste uh, material from even urban environments where there can be uh, herbicides and pesticides sprayed around and you really have to be super careful what compost you buy. Uh, or you can, there's actually been instances of on organic farms where there's been crop die off and when they examined it, they came to find out that there was chemical pollution in the soil and that, that had, you know, come in through the compost. So mm -hmm. 
to be a really healthy farm organism as biodynamics uh, leads the you know concepts from Rudolf Steiner uh, in his agriculture lectures in 1923 um, we we need to address creating our fertility cycle through the farm organism itself and uh, and then of course that would also the ideal include growing the feed for all of those animals and in our case we were using four acres of the farm at any given time uh, out of a, a 50 acre farm organism for vegetable growing but the rest of the land uh, was engaged with pasture and hay production and um, you know cover crop and things to maintain that whole fill, uh, fertility cycle and we haven't totally uh, achieved that uh, and we're still in a balancing process probably eliminating some of the cows um, we've uh, brought the workhorses down from six to four and uh, so that's what we need to achieve in the future is, is the balance of uh, that and also um, maintaining the, you know, the infrastructure. Um, we still have a ways to go on some of that, although we've built uh, barns and a living space and buildings. Uh, especially if we involve more people in agriculture, we need to maintain, uh, you know, residence for people on the farm, I believe. Um, and so there's a lot in that business uh, aspect and, uh, and uh, we're in process of transferring to younger farmers and so you know, building a life that works for everybody in the farm organism is critical. And like I mentioned before, uh, certain equipment that would specifically meet our live power farming goals, uh, we really would like to see that get developed and, and be able to take on some of the maintenance work uh, in, in the whole farm operation and you've got you've got three sons right yes we do and are they involved with the farm now or have they gone off to do their own thing or um how does that kind of fit in with your future your future scenario well the youngest no sorry the oldest um alexander he and his partner um ran the farm this year and they're in the process of just process of deciding whether they will continue next year mm -hmm. and the two younger ones they um, bought 160 acres just a few miles from us and they um, they ranch it but um, they are uh, they have a construction company they own the local auto parts store and they're constantly coming up with uh, more entre entrepreneurial ideas for themselves and for the community because they really want to you know serve the community in terms of cleaning the um the valley up 
been doing, um, building, you know, really wonderful, beautiful structures that everyone would be proud of. And have they, have they followed the same kind of idea of, of basically locking their land in so that it's going to stay in the condition that, that they want it to be or have, have they not? They, they have not done that. Um, they're, you know, they, um, they have the land and they lease some of it for, um, for cows and hay and then they grow some um, hay for themselves for the cows. They got a, a small herd of cows and they have composted the land and they've done fencing and, and all of that, but that's just on the side. You know, their main uh, work where they bring money in is um, through their construction and electrical work and uh, their auto parts store. And, um, but they, you know, are determined to make the land pay for itself. And do you think that Alexander and partner might end up basically taking up the reins when you guys decide it's time to put them down or, or, or not? That's what we're, that's what we're waiting to hear. Okay. <laughs> this is our I mean, okay. ideally today after we talk to you, there will be some comments made. Okay. Okay, that's cool. We're, we're just about at the end of our time. Um, is there anything that you'd like to make sure we put out there to, to the people who listen to this later um, that well, we've not touched on? Well, we touched on this a little bit, and um, Stephen spoke about the impact of the educational opportunities that we provide, but uh -huh. um, the school class visits that we have done is mostly third graders and but then also we've worked with a, a private school in the east bay um with their sixth grade classes and they've been coming for the last 21 years and it's every year it's about oh 70 80 children that come at different moments but um the impact on these children is is just huge. Uh, their experience over four days, you know, and we, they milk the cow, they make compost, they harvest potatoes, they chop corn, they f feed the animals, and they, they really become an integral part of the farm, and they work. They, they really work, and this experience has impacted these children hugely. So, you know, we hear stories of children going on to, as a result of their experience on the farm, they go on to be veterinarians, they go on to be farmers, they go on to um, be involved in their communities with community gardens and helping others. And, um, and uh, we've had a, a, quite a few um, teachers return with their own classes of children and those teachers were here when they were in third grade and um and, and it's not only becoming farmers or veterinarians but it's also all not only the children but the parents who and the teachers who come for these experiences they 
all go away with a greater respect for their food, a greater respect for the land, a greater respect for the earth and what it gives to us. And to us, that's, you know, a blessing, a huge blessing. Well, and it, it sounds like what you're doing is a blessing too. You know, uh, Alan Chadwick, my mentor, uh, pointed out that in Genesis, it says man is in the garden to dress it and to keep it. So if you want an original job description for the human, uh, I think that's a good one. Yeah, I think that's a good one, too. I often think, you know, they, we, we're this really strange, complex being, right? And we, and we have almost equal capacity to either be, you know, a destroyer or a creator. Exactly. And we've spent the last few thousand years just basically plumbing the very bottom of the potential of raping and pillage. Mm -hmm. So maybe we could go forward to do gardening instead now. Um, Yay. Exactly. Is the bottom line good just for the individual or is it the good of the whole, the whole community and the whole of creation? That's, that's what we have to look towards. Yeah, and we and we really are kind of we're we're up a, our noses are pressed to the wall, in in terms of the the, the way we've been trying to do stuff. That's right. Um, you know, so it's it's time to pick up the other one. Yeah, and it will take people, and you know, um, uh, depending on what our uh, son and his partner choose, um, there would be openings in this farm um, for learning and maybe also for, you know, longer term operating uh, the farm because this farm is a permanent farm, which is sort of a strange concept in, in land ownership, but it, it, it is a permanent farm. And uh, if our family, is, you know, if it uh, moves out, then it'll move to people that uh, want to be farming uh, according to these concepts. So it's opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. This has been really, really inspiring. If people want to get in touch or find out more, is the best to go to your website? Is that where you send them first? Um, can do that. And then our email is livepower at livepower.org. Okay, and the website being www.livepower.org, yes. right? Yeah, the dot .org confuses people, but uh, this was started in the days when uh, all electronics were just being initiated, and yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, or it could be organism, as you keep as you keep referring to the farm, you know. Yeah, so, it is. It's a, it's maybe, a maybe that does fit really well. So www.livepower.org, and I recommend you go to look the website. It's rich with information and inspiration. And um, as Gloria mentioned, you can also write to livepower at livepower.org, is it again, for their email? Yes, and then it's also, that is also the email that's accessed on the website. Super, super. Thanks so much. I've Thank really you. enjoyed this and look forward to talking to you guys again. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of Designing Paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by Rasa, 
the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.